Okay, everyone, and welcome to the latest, greatest episode of the Network Age. I'm here with my co-hosts, Milrun Mardux and Timluk Miptev, and uh, we got a lot of news today, boys. The Queen is dead, but we don't even want to start there. We want to start with something even bigger than the Queen, and that is the SEC. What do you think? You guys are pro-SEC, right? You love it all? Yeah, I think Gary's... He's doing a lot to protect us, and it's a thankless job, but someone has to fight for our freedoms. So I'm, I'm excited about his, you know, that he's sort of not going to give an inch. It, it, it inspires you from the perspective of just mm, like a commander sort of, who's going to go to bat for you. It's kind of like a Steve Jobs moment that he's doing there. Like everyone's telling him, you know, don't regulate, don't protect investors. But he's like, you know, I'm going to like just go against, I'm going to buck the curve and just like protect at all costs investor interests. It's amazing. Well, you yeah, guys are investors. So this, Don't you have interests you want pr- protected? I do. So I guess we should give the listeners just the really brief context. was essentially that he came out and said, uh, I mean, I guess like Matt Levine and Bloomberg put it the best, which is, you know, uh, you know, I want to regulate this whole market and I want to basically ban everything in it, which is like more or less, again, as Levine noted, like the position that like, you know, drug control takes at the federal level. It's, it's not like a completely novel position for a regulator, but it's interesting given that like most of other the other federal agencies and Congress are more in the, uh, this is like the next wave of tech and finance. Let's make sure that America gets something from it. Gensler's, you know, standing athwart history shouting no. So it's, it's inspiring. And there's a ton of kind of pushback at the company level, and we'll kind of get into that with Coinbase um, and other companies. I mean, they're also being sued by Grayscale as of June. And so the SEC is in a lot of legal actions. And because they're kind of against this large parallel economy, this is a very well-funded opposition now. So we weren't sure, I think, last time we talked about Tornado Cash, we weren't sure where this was going to go. And now we're starting to see, okay, Coinbase is willing to basically bankroll an unlimited challenge to the SEC relate, or to the Treasury related to this. Grayscale is doing a challenge to the SEC. Um, Ripple is still in a challenge uh, with the SEC, it's still in lawsuits. So there's actually a lot of ongoing lawsuits, and they're incredibly well-funded. It's quite interesting. So what actually is being proposed here? Is it all clear what the future regulation is going to look like? Do do you actually think that there's a chance that something gets banned entirely? Or do you think it's just his goal is to sort of nerf cryptocurrency to make it less powerful so it's not something he has to work with? Uh, So the latter, he wants to nerf cryptocurrency through enforcement because he does not have sort of a legislative or rulemaking angle to block it. If he issued very explicit rules uh, and they were super negative, they would likely be challenged. And if he issued them and they were at all positive, it would leave like, you know, loopholes you could drive like, you know, truckloads of projects through. And so the SEC's approach very much is to run sort of this delaying action where they don't make any rules. They make examples of some companies. They take a very strong position about everything being a security. Uh, and just hold that off as long as possible. And something I saw in particular was like a sort of reworking of the Howie test that they're trying to do there. Mm -hmm. And they really like this sort of like the Howie test, you know, this idea of a security being an investment of money in a common enterprise with profits to come solely from the efforts of others. When I was listening to his comments um, to the SEC chairman's comments, he didn't mention the word solely at all. So the Supreme Court uh, has that 
um, very limiting word there that it has to be because of solely the efforts of others. And the SEC is trying to get rid of that word and just say like, oh, are you making money because other people's, um, are you investing in something with the help of other people there? So I think it's like, they're, they're, to Tim's point, they're trying to really switch the Howey test there, but without issuing any rules that could be challenged in court. One sort of follow-up there is that the reason that that's important uh, to sort of make the Howey test really strict is that another thing in that uh, Levine article that I think was really good and we should link in the show notes was the, was the idea that it, it pretty much is true that most crypto projects are both products and securities and that's kind of their whole novel appeal is that they're doing both of those things at once. It's essentially like if you got to have shares in Uber by being an early, like an early driver and suddenly you were like a millionaire because you drove Uber early, which honestly mm. would have been like really cool and made Uber a lot less sort of evil. And, and they attempted um, that actually, interestingly. <laughs> Airbnb, they, they and, the Airbnb the and Uber, late, late, for sure. But interestingly, the SEC blocked that, even that idea. Of Because of course, they, they basically just don't like anything that shakes up the paradigm at all. So for that reason, um, it, it, like it's very important for the SEC to take this very strong position because if you let being a product or having any other efforts matter for the price of the thing, um, uh, you know, including the, the users, their position that like it pretty much opens, you can very easily pretty much make any token into not regulated by the SEC unless they take this very strong position. Which brings me to what you were talking about a second ago, Neil Run, when you were noting the well-fundedness of all these challenges from Ripple, Coinbase, and others. And that's sort of an underrated point in this sphere, which is that all of these projects have a ton of money, like generally in the billions of dollars. And the SEC can't use any of their normal moves, like shut, like sort of blocking access to the funds via banks, because like, especially for things like Ripple, like it's held in crypto. And so, and same for Uniswap or anything mm, like that, yeah. that might face a challenge. And all the lawyers are perfectly happy to take USDC. Like, there's just, like, no mm. problem paying the lawyers in crypto. And so it creates the situation where they, they normally would be able to choke off uh, a lot of companies' sort of, you know, life force in terms of ability to fund legal. But in America, being the great country it is, if you have, you know, a $10 million annual budget to throw at legal, legal, you can get pretty freaking far. Like, the, the diminishing returns of spend on legal happen a lot faster than the size of these companies' treasuries. Mm -hmm. So because you can go bankless now as a crypto company, it's just much, much harder for the SEC and the Treasury Department, I imagine, to really put pressure on you. Is that the case? Yeah, you could actually think of this as like a, a really early implication of the network age, which is that unlike Web2 companies and sort of trad companies that have a power and finance base that could be cut off by the state easily, these ones have a source of funding that's someone outside the state. So... Tim, like you're, what you said is interesting to me about it no longer being really relevant whether these coins are connected to a product or not. Because I remember when we first started working together in crypto in 2017, all these ICO projects were really going out of their way to say, we are a use case token, a utility token, and therefore we are not regulated or subject to regulation by the SEC. And you're now saying, I think, that as programmatic blockchains grow, there's a case to be made that any of these tokens can be utility tokens and that distinction is no longer viable. Um, 
It's actually more that the SEC completely rejected that analysis and has gone with, you know, essentially, lol, screw you. Like, we think you're, you know, we think you're a security. We're going to regulate you no matter what cute legal arguments you make. And Ripple is right now in the process of sort of going through that. And it's still quite far from, you know, being close to you know, a place where the Supreme Court could uh, provide clarity. Yeah, the SEC has basically done this for this initiative where everything is a security. And then they say, oh, yeah, we have all these great processes for securities. Just go register. And then I remember like the cycle in 2019, 2020, people actually they were talking about security tokens and registering with SEC in this new track. And then the SEC basically just did not um, actually approve any of those security tokens. Totally. So now, in my opinion, it's war. The, like that's whenever you have a fundamental difference of opinion that can't be resolved through sort of, you know, coming to some kind of agreement or negotiation, you go to war. And in this system, fortunately, it's nonviolent. But I think we're in for a lot of years of heavy legal warfare um, mm. done from the both the perspective of companies that have large treasuries that can fight for a long time. And then also I expect to see some stuff moving outside the U.S., but funding legal efforts uh, in the U.S., do you view this as something where it's it's one side wins totally, or do you think that this is something that eventually some sort of detente will be reached where there's uh, some amount of regulation that satisfies institutions like the SEC while still giving enough freedom for crypto to work within certain boundaries? What do you think I'm going to answer? <laughs> I, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I know what you're going to... Uh, I think you want crypto to to win all the way but i'm wondering is that is that the most likely future well actually no i was going to ask what you thought i thought was the most likely future um but i think in this case the most likely future is a long protracted legal battle that ties up a lot of sec resources probably a significant dampening of projects launched from within the us with tokens I expect the end result, and when I say end result, I'm talking like in the five to 10 year time frame, to be US regulation that provides the ability to do these types of uh, hybrid product security offerings at large scale, but probably with some types of like disclosures and fraud provisions, but at just like, you know, one or two orders of magnitude lower in overhead than you currently have to do for, you know, registering something with the SEC, maybe three magnitudes, meaning like, you know, a thousand times less. And you think that comes from Congress in this example, or just a change in sort of SEC policy, maybe? Do you have like just a quick rundown of what what happened with Coinbase? Because I wasn't like totally up on it. Yeah, so basically, um, so you had the Tornado Cash um, sanctions by the US Treasury, and then you had Amsterdam, the Dutch authorities, arresting one of the Tornado Cash developers. Very interestingly, they've held him without any charges in the Netherlands for over a month now, uh, not even letting his um, wife talk to him. So it's a really kind of messed up situation there. Mm -hmm. um, and what's really different about this, and we talked about this before with our episode focused on Tornado Cash, um, was that they were sanctioning, US Treasury sanctioning a technology, a piece of code, and not just individuals. And so the Coinbase lawsuit is really focusing in on the US Treasury does not, in the view of Coinbase, have the regulatory authority to sanction software. That They were never granted that by Congress. Um, so it's a very interesting situation where they're they're basically funding six uh, challengers to that sanction uh, sanctioning of 
Tornado Cash by basically focusing in on you're sanctioning a technology and not individuals? So that brings me back to Bitchell's question about, and your question about what I think might happen. And I think that these legal challenges will probably lock down and tie down any attempts by, you know, OFEC to expand that bridgehead into then, you know, making, you know, let's say ETH validators uh, block transactions or having exchanges impose lots of restrictions on use of funds from Tornado Cash and sort of tie that down. And by keeping that open, uh, that's going to give the opportunity both for, you know, probably some more token projects to keep launching from within the U.S. and maybe braving the SEC, and then some more to happen from outside. And just and all this is happening against a backdrop, in my opinion, of a likely big boom in ETH price and people chasing, like, the very high real yields there. And, you know, this parallel digital economy. And I think that will start to apply pressure on Congress, both in the lobbyist sense and also just the sort of full, well, I guess, yeah, the lobbyist, like there's a big industry here, a lot of money type sense. Yeah, I could see that lobbying effect having, um, just being very, very powerful. We saw that with the infrastructure bill on the Bitcoin side of things. I think one thing I noticed that was very interesting about the Coinbase lawsuit in particular was how they had selected the people suing U.S. Treasury. And so one of them they selected was a Coinbase employee who was donating money to Ukrainian refugees and wanted to use Tornado Cash technology to anonymize that so that the Russian hackers wouldn't be able to hit him personally. Um, so this is kind of interesting mm. phenomenon there, right? You know, because the SEC, uh, the Treasury Department was hitting it as your money laundering. The S- and then Coinbase employees have been hit for insider trading. And now Coinbase is responding, right, by picking this sort of, hey, we're trying to help Ukrainian refugees. And this is like a really useful technology for that. Mm-hmm. And... Overall, I think their, you know, their strategy is good. If we, if we back up to a broader level, I think there's this big angle starting to take shape here that of like, okay, there was an initial huge punch thrown by OFAC and the Treasury, and now the SEC coming out and throwing a big punch. And I think the industry has absorbed that punch and consolidated and isn't sort of in immediate danger of getting, you know, completely kneecapped. Like they've sort of circled the wagons, gotten stuff in place, prepared mm. like their their next thing. And I think if we think back to a month ago when the initial tornado cash stuff happened, that was not at all obvious that would happen. I think a lot of people who are kind of traumatized by the centralization of the internet over the last 20, 30 years, basically expected Coinbase and similar to just completely cave, could comply with whatever OFAC wanted, uh, go immediately to walled garden crypto. And that's not happening. Now, I'm not sure of the exact reasons why it's not happening. My, I've written a lot on Twitter about how kind of, you know, this sort of nerfed, broken, overregulated crypto doesn't have much product market fit. And I think possibly they know that. Uh, And so I think it's probably a combination of that, plus them feeling that they have a strong enough position that doesn't have, like they've taken the strongest punch and still have their kind of fortress intact. And I think now they feel very good about, you know, going on something of an offensive from there because they don't feel exposed on the flanks. I think talking about this like a war is interesting because I think it also points to some of the strategies that the government and people who are interested in regulation will take to discredit people who are pro crypto or, you know, pro the network age, and it will have things that have nothing to do with finances or money. You know, I think that one reason that tornado cash was a really easy thing for them to pick is because it also allows them to say, look, not only is this 
technology bad, but the people who are using it are all evil money launderers, right? Mm, You're able to put people... Yeah, exactly. You're able to put people in a box. And I also think that this is sort of in line with the what the Biden administration released saying that crypto is a threat to the environment and talking about Bitcoin and proof of work and electricity. It's this really cynical attempt to to distract you, to do a little sleight of hand, because I mean, you know, I am, you know, a, a dirty lib in many ways. I really care about the environment, but it's such a MacGuffin to make crypto about the environment because it's just a drop in the bucket compared to the way energy is being used in all these other industries that they're perfectly fine to, to support. Not to mention the fact that the merge is about to happen. We'll see. Maybe we should do a special, like, you know, Viva merge, merge with us. Mm, Viva yeah, it's hot, like forever. Viva La Merge. All right. Next year in Merge Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, and like, and I honestly think that's for the reasons you mentioned, that's a big deal. That entire line of argument is about to get completely taken out. I think ETH is going to soar past Bitcoin's market cap, and that's just gone, the environmental one. And suddenly you're going to have all these funds wanting to like put money into it because it's ESG compliant. Uh, they may go after the S and the G. Um, and, <laughs> there, and so I think this might also be a little bit of a worry and a preemptive attack at the some of the obvious angles are sort of disappearing thanks to the hard work of St. Vitalik and friends. Yeah, those are disappearing. And like the attempt to kind of smear... Tornado Cash is like, oh, this is all North Korean hackers or like Russian agents. Like that's what I found so brilliant about the Coinbase using the Ukrainian refugee again. It's like you just need to up the narrative. You need to get ahead of the narrative. You need to go on the offensive and be like, this is a tool for freedom. This is a tool of empowerment. This is exactly why content creators like me are actually the most important people in the uh, the war for crypto is is just like everything. It's all it's all storytelling and you developers really should take a backseat to to people like me, I think. So, Nilron, you were mentioning how, and, and Bitchell, how the Biden administration wants to use this national security angle. And in the 1990s, 2000s now, everyone always will say things like, oh yeah, but the, the government is just going to say that it's a threat to national security and mm. everyone will just <laughs> go along with it because like they'll say terrorism and like everyone goes with that. That's just factually not true. Like they can, they're always going to make that yeah. argument. But I think they tried that are, in the '90s too, in the '80s. They do right? it for everything. They do it for like even for marijuana. They'll try to do stuff like that. And if the people want the shit bad enough, it just doesn't matter. And like even people, people are yeah. idiots. Like no one likes getting patted down by TSA. Like people aren't just well, like you're really we all, lonely. You know, like I think no, no runs digital nomad life. You know, if you're not meeting enough people, you go to the airport and get a little human contact. Uh, yeah, just the mere fact your mind went to that, Mitchell. Like, uh, yeah, I kind of have questions about Montana life now. I've taken many flights and never uh, needed TSC, TSA well, to so, help me. So you just, you just got to request well, it. You, you know, they say it's a, they say if you feel more comfortable going through that instead of the, the scanner, you can, you can get a mm, little cop. A pat down with like a happy ending. Nice. Yeah, so exactly. we're definitely, really... we're definitely going to write like, you know, TLC from the TSA, like discussed by Mitchell <laughs> yeah. Rickson and Norman Mardux. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that it's very cool that we're seeing these companies taking like not not worrying about the national security angle. And again, that's sort of the strongest punch after the national security, North Korea angle or Russia or whatever. There isn't that much of a punch left. And if you absorb it, 
I don't know. There's the, the counterattack could run very deep behind their lines. And it's probably obvious that I'm like spending all day like frantically scrolling about the Ukraine offensive in like near Lake Kharkiv, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, me as well. It's been very, very distracting. It's sort of like when the war started, I spent like a full on week just like analyzing it. And now, of course, a lot happened in the last seven months, but you know, now things are moving so quickly on that offensive and it, it does affect the network age. I don't think, I don't know if we want to talk about it now, but it, it is interesting to think about, okay, what if Ukraine wins? What is sort of the effect of that? Yeah. Leaving aside the physical war right now, I actually think that people in the U.S. and the world, as this turns into an actual war and they see a chance of winning it and a way to win it, uh, it will build morale. People will get really excited. And I think mm. being on a winning side is just extremely, it, it does stuff to you chemically. Like I haven't been able, like I haven't been sleeping much the last few days, but I feel like totally fine because there's so Yo, much. Yeah, you can going. never tell. <laughs> and I think that in U.S. crypto, sort of not having a challenge for a long time kind of made people soft. And I think that really, mm. you know, we, we get, we're getting closer to like, you know, the hard times that create like, you know, good men or, you know, good times making hard men or whatever the thing is. Um, <laughs> I think we're, I think we're getting closer to that where I really felt from Tornado, I didn't know how, you know, ETH people, crypto people would react. And it seems like they've reacted in this very high morale, like you've challenged us and we are going to fuck you up kind of way. Mm -hmm. yes yes no i'm feeling like way more energized like not just ukraine war but the coinbase like seeing coinbase a company that like i kind of dislike in a lot of ways um for like prior actions seeing them bankrolling the opposition to uh, coinbase is literally the company coinbase is literally the company that everyone uses as the example of like the company that will screw up crypto and do bad stuff and now they're (laughs) just like oh they're you know, incredibly based. Yeah. Well, I think as we see all these uh, these men stand up for what we believe in, we can realize that the saying is actually that hard men make good times, as uh, something that no I think one knows a lot about. That's extremely hard to disagree with. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, I think uh, talking about geopolitics makes uh, this a good time to pivot to the to the last bit of news here, which is, um, you know. Uh, uh, Granny Liz uh, is is out, and uh, you know my main political opinion about her is that she looked cute in her hats and gloves, and I'll be s- sad to see that drip go. I'm it's it, it's the only queen I've ever known, and I'm interested to see what comes next. I've been waiting for Charles to become king like my entire life, ever since his you know heel turn in the you know early nineties. Well, I think what we were sort of talking about here is that this represents something that is is starting to happen and will only accelerate, which is what we've called a, a cycling of elites. And we are reaching a point where many of the more powerful figures in the world in economics are aging out of their power. And there's a chance for some real turnover here for for this vacuum to be filled by people who believe in a network age, or at least in um, involving themselves in, in a in a future, and not just the past. Yeah, and I think it's gonna probably skip a generation too. Like we have, like the queen was what ninety? She was like late nineties, and she had mm-hmm. ruled for seventy years. Um, and that's interesting, right? You have Charles the Third, or whatever he's going to be called, um, and you see kind of parallels in the U.S. where it's like Hillary Trump. Biden, they're all really old. They're all like their 
late 70s now um Mm -hmm. and you're kind of like looking at okay is there anyone who's like 50 60 who would replace them and it's like not really and then you're like okay what about 40 50 it's like uh maybe and like then you look down at like people are like 20 to 30 uh the millennials zoomers and like there's so many more ideas coming from there and so i could see it kind of like not just a changing of the guard and kind of like Charles III replacing Elizabeth II, but like actually skipping generations and moving very advantageously towards kind of crypto policy because of that change in age. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think there's so much more energy coming out of younger people right now and, and more creativity and frankly, more optimism. I think I'm someone who has to battle my personal cynicism, but optimism is a really powerful force, I think, both in creating change and in gathering resources to you. People want to believe in a positive future. And I think people who are able to really persuasively articulate that, you know, the future can be good and not just some digital hellscape, well, that's where people are going to want to put their energy and resources into supporting. And I, and I think that really is younger people who are more comfortable with this technology and, and see how it could work to, to benefit them and others. Yeah, exactly. For some reason, there's like a ton of doomers, like the Gen X generation is like just massive doomers. And like what Tim Luckett said earlier about them always saying, well, it's going to be blocked by for national security reasons. I mean, even Yarvin said that pretty consistently. Like Bitcoin will be stopped by the government action. He's like still saying that. It's kind of remarkable. <laughs> so like, I mean, well, he must us, be yeah. celebrating uh, or uh, sad today as as a monarchist. You know, his his uh, his last grave hope has has stepped out the door. Mm. Maybe maybe he's hopeful though that like Charles the Third will bring him in as special advisor <laughs> yeah. to the United Kingdom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I can see that happening too. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so I think like people see this. I think the young people look at it, and so when they look at like replacing the boomers with Gen X, they're like, "Well, the Gen Xers are all—they're sort of doomers. They don't have a positive vision for the future." Um, then they look down at like, okay, millennials, and like actually a decent number of millennials. We saw this with like the crypto lobbying. Do have a positive vision for the future related to kind of this network age, related to new tools. Um, even just listening to Bankless, right? I was listening to a Josh Rosenthal one about the crypto revolution. And like the Bankless hosts and Josh are like, they're joking about, you know, this is like the next American revolution. This is the moment um, for change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, to some degree, am sympathetic with, with doomerism to the degree that I think there are a lot of problems in the world. And I think where I disagree is that the point of recognizing those problems, right, is to use that to to catalyze change and to make a difference. And I think that, you know, not allowing yourself to see the problems in the world is just as bad as allowing those problems to completely dominate your mindset and say that there's there's nowhere we can go. So I think we're going to... Um, wrap up this uh, first section of the pod, the, the news, but, you know, we'll do it on a nice positive note. The, the Zoomers are here to take the throne.
So in the first part of this podcast, we were discussing a lot about the idea of sort of new power centers or conflicts and things like that. And one thing that's interested me for a very long time is sort of the theory of what cities are and how they could move into a network age and kind of function as these centers of power. And in a lot of ways, cities to me are more, much more interesting than states. Uh, we could go into this a little bit more, but just at a broad level, very often your state is like, you know, your passport, your taxes, stuff like that. But your city is like, you know, your friends, your job, like all of your, you know, relationships, your chance encounters, your, you know, prospects for the future, your social capital. The stuff we care about, not just. Yeah, exactly. All the stuff, all the stuff like, we oh, care passport, about. All the stuff we like <laughs> deeply care about. Right. That isn't just sort of, you know, either fungible or, you know, sort of dreary obligations or just very broad level support like healthcare if you're not American. So I want to get into that in a little bit more depth. And I think like the best way for me to get into the question of what, you know, sort of what is a city and how could we bring it into this network age world is just I actually want to just ask you guys, like both of you. When you've been in cities that you liked, whether sort of smaller or larger, what was the most important aspects to you about them and giving the specific cities? Well, this is something that we actually touched on a little bit in our last episode. And I think you said it well when you brought up serendipity. And I think a lot of what I'm looking for in a city or in like from the physical space I'm living in is um, the ability to discover new things, not only to connect with things that already align with my values, for example, why you might move to San Francisco for tech or New York to do theater or something. And those things can be really exciting and interesting, but also in things that broaden my world in ways that I wouldn't have been able to predict or offer opportunities to challenge myself in some way. And what, what city do you find is like, good for that that you'll like which one I mean, new york in Montana baby now, so. new york i'm walking york. here i'm walking, walking here there. yeah i i mean you know yeah. i i live in montana now but i moved from brooklyn and you know i'm a i've got deep uh brooklyn jewish roots so that you know part of me is biased but the thing i loved about living there was just it was such a surprising interesting place really diverse not only you know racially or anything like that but just in terms of the minds you meet and the places you end up and it was the place where I was consistently the most surprised by what I was doing on any given day or what happened to me in a really positive way yeah I think like serendipity comes out as the word I think of like what I like about New York as well I mean I don't really like how hectic New York is in some ways like Mexico City has those aspects for me without those issues as does like Buenos Aires like I get kind of that aspect of the city where like random things I wasn't expecting to happen during the day can happen. Um, and I, I, very concretely for like Urbit sort of like working remotely, one thing I really liked about centering things in Mexico City to some extent, I think you could do the same thing in Buenos Aires, is like I didn't have to plan out my whole day. It's like, okay, some guys will be working at this cafe or they have this apartment nearby close to my apartment. We could just like play it by ear. There was no like schedule. There was no like, hey, what time are you getting into your car to drive and meet me? Are we meeting from two to three? It was very flexible. We could kind of like go with the flow and how the day develops. So for me, this is like in big contrast to online communities. And I'll disclaim this with the fact that I actually spend most of my time online. And even when I was living in major U.S. cities a lot circa 2018, like, you know, New York, L.A., mm, uh, San Francisco, yeah. et cetera, I was mostly interacting them in them, meeting people who I knew online. And one of my 
I, I like a lot of stuff about the more virtualized types of communities, but I think my biggest dis- dissatisfaction is that they can often be extremely fragmented or get very monotonous. Like very often you'll form groups that amount to like subreddits and they'll have like a Mm. specific interest or set of interests. And it's very, very hard for types of cross-pollination to happen. And maybe when when, when they do happen, they're often just sort of, they're seemingly like random. And and it doesn't feel like, uh, I get it sometimes. And I think Urban at its best in sort of its group golden age of like 2020, which I don't think is related to any kind of like eternal September thing, but just it was probably more of a COVID thing at that time. I think it had some of those good aspects, but that's something that's very often missing in online communities, in my opinion. Yeah, there's this feeling, I think, on online communities that you have to like narrow the set of ideas that you're going to think and talk about just to what fits into like, for example, subreddit. And Mm -hmm. that's not like how the human brain works. The human brain has like, like at least mine has like a lot of different ideas going at the same time. So if I have to like partition it and be like, okay, this idea goes there, this idea goes in this other orbit group, it's like really, it takes a lot of like effort and it ends up with sort of like a, I don't know, kind of like hollowed version of me online is what I feel. Yeah, you want to be able to maybe have some organizing principle for why you're getting together or how you're meeting people. But for that to be limited, it makes the experience feel artificial. You know, you go to some literature urban group and you can only talk about, you know, Faulkner Mm -hmm. for so long. You, You would just want to be able to have an organic experience that is impossible when roles are so strictly delineated, you know, and there's not the same thing as showing up to... A, a concert or a, you know, a play or something, and you have that experience with a group of people, and then you can go off to the bar after and talk about whatever you want and mm. see where the night takes you. I find that those types of groups, like the, you know, literature group in Urban or a subreddit, I, I, I just thought of this term, but they feel like social Ponzi's. Like in the sense they need this <laughs> continuing, they need this continuing supply of either new people or new catalysts to really feel like something is going on and you'll often find that where there's this rush of energy around something when like an event happens or there's something for some information for people to bring together or ideas needed and then like you know the new capital runs out and the social ponzi like kind of withers so is what we're saying that a city needs or what we're missing in digital cities is a is actually about organizing and connection like I'm, I'm trying to really put it in concrete hmm. terms. Like, what are we missing from these communities that is so difficult to replicate, and what technology exists now that might make replicating that possible? This is going to be a really sort of triple bank shot, like 4D chess answer. And I'm still <laughs> yes. still playing with it, but I think at its heart, the best physical communities often involve some kind of long running shared goal, even if it's a MacGuffin. Uh, Mm -hmm. for people who know for like, you know, in TV shows or movies, MacGuffin is like this plot thing that everyone's trying to, you know, get or figure out. The Maltese Falcon. Uh, The Maltese Falcon. It's the excuse for the adventure. Exactly. Or like what, like, you know, um, the, Mm. the girl's death in like Twin Peaks. Like it's not important at all, but it like, it's sort of like, you know, the excuse for it. And I think universities have this. I think initial sort of the start of people's careers in a city has this where you can actually kind of plausibly claim that you care about this form of networking because it vaguely matters for your like, quote unquote, career going forward. But it's very much like a MacGuffin for you to hang out with the same types of people you hung out with in college, but also sort of push things forward, find new relationships, etc. And so... 
as I was saying, it's sort of a triple bank shot thing, but or sort of Rube Goldberg machine. But I think there is something to the fact that the best online sort of groupings I'm in have some kind of shared goal. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, I think my most productive one right now is everything related to Ukbar and Urbit in the sense of pushing the project forward. Um, and that is sort of serious enough and a big enough thing that it's not quite a MacGuffin. Like I actually have to produce results. But it seems to have a lot of similarities to that in terms of lots of recurring types of natural interactions I have to have with people, expansion of the circles that I have to do in order to like either achieve goals or even vaguely network in that post-college sense. Yeah, I think what you're saying in some ways is that life isn't a picaresque, right? You're not just bouncing from adventure to adventure in a, in a disconnected way, you know? Our experience of cities is built on a foundation that that grows and, and moves outward and iterates and develops, but you do have core things, whether they're principles or people or physical space that tie that experience together. And our online cities tend to either be uh, too isolated, where there's no ability to iterate, or completely fragmented, where there's no way to port one part of your life yeah, into another. Yeah. If you watch like a, like like a lot of you know sort of famous TV shows of varying quality like involve the lives of characters living in cities like I just for some reason I'm thinking of like I don't even particularly like the show but like of how I met your mother and very you love that notice, show. it's your favorite oh, show. <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> my point is that in order to sort of make to sort of make the thing work, uh, it'll involve this like like the characters will have something sort of city or career related that they're pursuing like along the time that very often forms the backbone for stuff that's happening. And I think if we sort of started to look for this for how people live in cities, you'll very often see these like inter inter sort of intersecting. Uh, lines of people's, you know, career, social, like romantic arcs and goals coming together, like in that place. I also think something that draws people to cities, and we've talked about this before, right? Is is economic opportunity, right? It's it's where the it's where the jobs are, and I think that that is something that is really changing in terms of we we talk about like technically and culturally that makes digital cities more possible is not only are more and more jobs moving online, but as cryptocurrency and blockchain technology grow, money is being woven into the fabric of the internet in a much more seamless, intuitive way that can bridge across communities and help you create a sense of continuity in your online life. Let's go back to my example of Urban and Ukbar. Like one reason we're all together kind of hanging out and like vibing is that <laughs> like it's like economically necessary and possible because of like the investments in, you know, crypto form that have gone into, you know, those projects and then are kind of imperative from there to sort of spread the word or do them. And everything, st I really do think, yeah, that like technically once you have applications and money together, it does, it almost produces all of these like new MacGuffins that like might drive a lot of cultural output in surprising ways because of how pushed people are to experiment. And I think this leads us to the next point we are interested, which is a discussion of uh, social graphs and what Justin Murphy has called social AI and what exactly it means to be able to integrate money into the into these systems. So I'm curious if you um, could ex explain what your thinking is on this and exactly what we mean when we say social graphs in this context. 
Okay, so like everything in this episode, these are sort of exploratory thoughts. And people are very familiar with social graphs in the context of like, you know, Facebook or Twitter. Like on Facebook, it's just who follows you and who you follow and same on Twitter. And you can think of that in, in computer science, a graph is just a thing where you have points that are connected by lines. And so you following your friend is like a line connecting you. And you can kind of think of that as this big web of like lines connecting everyone um, with you know, you maintaining some sort of relationship about that, like some sort of information about that line, either in your head or in the program for what it represents, like a friend, an acquaintance, um, you know, a business contact, a sales contact, whatever. And so I think that one thing that people are trying to build up over time in cities is definitely social graphs. And it's an extremely rich thing. It tends to be very those lines between the people tend to be very embedded in the city. So your job creates a lot of lines between you and all of those coworkers. And that's sort of embedded in your job or even in like, you know, the group, the company emails that get sent out or the slacks they have. Mm. And then all your friends are, you know, embedded um, either in the chance encounters you have physically, the group chats you have that plan where you'll meet all of that stuff. And these are very much resources that people build up over time in these heterogeneous ways. And I think the thing that interests me the most technically in Urbit right now specifically is the possibility to like create social graphs that are a lot richer than what's in Twitter and Facebook and that can be used by lots of applications and then go into the, the real world. But that's that's a little bit of an extra topic. I, I do want to sort of note that I think that's becoming more and more possible. But if we're going to go back to money and crypto and what it what it means for, you know, social AI to be unlocked, these groups that can then fund themselves and you know, sort of build on themselves, I think that fundamentally having easily accessible money inside crypto and companies forming and projects forming, even if they're not companies, like this podcast is like sort of an almost artistic collaboration between some people in Iqbar <laughs> and then Nil Run in like Aleph. I think it enables new kinds of graphs like employer, employee, collaborator, patron, um, mm. investor, all of those. And those are very powerful and are very different from the types of social graph that you get from a lot of people hanging out in a subreddit. It's not just peers talking about like Game of Thrones theories. It's very much like in, in, in well, someone investing in, a very... in music diverse set of skill sets too it's like a diverse set of needs a diverse set of skill sets it's mixing new ways and it's sort of interesting when i think about urbit right because so much of it for so long was just like core development of urbit and so the number of people the type of people um and the types of kind of projects being done were very limited it's like okay we're focusing on core development and the types of people who are involved in urbit are core devs and so now as Urbit kind of expands, and now that we have an ecosystem, now that we have a lot of companies and we have very different sets of companies. So, you know, Ukbar very involved more in kind of like the money side of crypto, um, you know, facilitating ETH. You kind of start essentially like just widening uh, the tent here, right? We are broadening the tent of Urbit. And now we have, for example, Justin Murphy, who's... You know, we're very involved with, um, we kind of get access to his more intellectual circles. So we're kind of getting really like much more of a city-like environment on the um, on the Urbit side now than we had even a year ago. Broadening the tent is actually a really good way to think about this because 
when we when we talk about network states, it really tends to be in this legal framework that Tim discussed earlier, mm. passports, everything like that. Whereas the city is really where life is led, and there, in everyday life, there isn't a, a segregation of of your different interests and people, and it, it's not so clean, right? And when you are more seamlessly able to engage in more different types of interactions with different people in a way that overlaps, it, it does end up being spontaneous and there's sparks created and you can follow interests in, in new ways. So I think, you know, <laughs> in some ways it's a, a social composability and ability to... Mm leverage your port, yeah. your contracts and uh, networks in, in different ways in a way that feels organic, right? I think that's what we're talking about is the internet does not feel organic right now as a social experience. It's becoming more and more possible. There's an aspect of New York, right, where you could be like an investment banker, bro, like talking to my friends, but they loved New York because there was so much spontaneity happening. And you could like, for example, be like, oh, one of our friends is like a professional ballerina and we're like invited to like an after party there or like someone else is opening an art gallery. And so there's this ability to kind of like both succeed from your career in one area, but also port that sort of social capital into other dimensions. And some of those didn't really need to be planned. They're just through kind of like a very diverse social graph where you could go off on one of those sets of the social tree and really pursue it, like going, you know, getting really into art. Saying that cities are important because it allows lame-ass investment bankers to meet more interesting people. And allows the interesting people to get funded. Honestly, yes. Like that's from the point of view of like an investment banker. You're like putting in all these, and it's funny, we're saying investment bankers, like no one actually goes into investment banking out of college now. It's all like private equity and stuff like that. And it's like actually kind of like, or startups. But yeah, from the point of the investment banker, you're putting in all this time and your payoff from it needs to be that like some cool shit happens in your life to justify you like just wasting 90 to 100 hours of it a week. But what we're, I think another really cool thing is I like it when, an analytical framework pays off. And I think that when we talk about like these lines between people and what online communities often have, but that isn't enough is like just the same types of lines between people. We're all like, you know, building something, you know, we're all trying to develop Urbit's core or we're all fans of some like, you know, basketball team um, or we're talking about some TV show on Reddit, what have you. And what we're saying in a city or in the good version of, you know, Urbit now is that tons of new lines are forming and like new types of them. And people feel that viscerally. It actually, I, I don't, I, that's why I don't feel like I'm being too over analytical or autistic talking about the lines. Like, I think people really do feel like they're in this like sort of web and in a good way. I actually want to focus a little bit more on this on this web because I think that's so important. I think there were, I, just when I look back at like web two, the worldwide web. <laughs> the World Wide Web is like actually, you know, it's moving out of gardens and, you know, we're getting rid of those walled gardens and actually just like, yeah, able to make connections that are interesting. So that's not just like my subreddit. I'm not just living in this one urbit group. It's like I have a really rich social graph that that provides spontaneity, that provides um, new ideas. And so I, I don't it doesn't feel stale. Like That's the future I want. So another thing I wanted to talk about with the experience of cities is the idea of an apartment 
or, or digital land ownership, because that's really inextricable from the sense of belonging to a city is a place that is yours. You've invested in it. You can improve it. You can share it with other people. And I think, you know, there, this concept of digital land has has been around, but I'm curious for you guys in this version of a network city or digital city, what what is the equivalent of that? How do you share it with other people? And what technology exists now to enable uh, this new experience? By digital land, the way I think of it, and like all analogies, it breaks down at points, but I think of it as sort of this almost like base where you can build up stuff that you'll use in the future. Like if you're out there building this social graph, that there's something stable about that, like that you can sort of incrementally that you can incrementally improve. And I think that the first, you know, sort of popular examples of digital land that everyone relates to are profiles on big social networks. They very, like building a big profile very much feels like cultivating land in the sense of like you get your followers, you can, you know, broadcast things to them. And it's very much almost like in a business sense, like owning a store that's on a busy intersection uh, that people, like, you know, that people will walk by. The problem is, there are a lot of technical limitations. And I think the two biggest are uh, the lack of money and assets and the lack of ownership and improvability of the digital asset. So money and assets is you actually can't really get good native like financial interactions on Twitter, Instagram, platforms like that, even when you have a big audience. So it's just advertising. It's just advertising or advertising your businesses that are on, you know, another platform that you have to send people out to, right? And I think that, you know, crypto is very quickly making you know, in, uh, inroads there and people are excited about that. But there's also investability and improvability, there's not anything you can do to make your Twitter account stand out besides like the, the, the exact content you write on it. It's a very, and Instagram is similar in terms of just having photos, videos, and stories. And they don't have sort of programmatic improvability. And I think one thing that Justin Murphy was trying to get at in his social AI article by showing the limits of something like Ethereum right now is that while, while it adds the monetary aspect, it's very hard to write interesting programs on it. And you could say the same about you know Reddit or Twitter or something. And once you add that ability to hire programmers or use the programs people make to make your property have you know more interesting features or th- like things like things to do or connect like connect more stuff, it gets very interesting and it starts to really feel like the hot like the most pure form of what people like in land and real estate in the physical world, which is the ability to like do awesome things to it that make their lives better. Yeah, sort of a difference between like a drab communist country and city where like every building kind of looks the same and like the good old days of like where you could just easily improve your own house. Um, You had the tools to make it different. Um, And then like, you know, you end up with like actual creativity, right? People can reflect, can build, um, Essentially, yeah, beauty into the spaces they're owning there. You're saying you want old MySpace when you can embed your favorite song at the top and uh, and change your colors and uh, rearrange who your top eight friends were, depending on who said what to you at school that day. I really feel bad that I, like, missed that example because, and it's so revealing that when this, like, sort of current phase of the social web that we're in started, people actually had that feeling. Like, the platform actually gave the possibility to do it, and people did, like, really wacky shit there, like, within it. People really will 
express creativity very rapidly if you give them any outlets at all. And MySpace was like, yeah, proof of that. It's actually, that makes me really like sort of hopeful technologically in terms of what we're trying to unleash with Urbit plus ETH, but also like kind of, kind of sad. Like it's so much worse now. Where is Tom these days? Where, why did MySpace die in that case? I mean, I'm sure a lot of audiences oh. listened to this, but it was a little before my time even. Was it not just Facebook ate it? Like that was, you know, my experience. I was on, I was on MySpace and then older, cooler people than me said, MySpace, you know, what are you doing there? It's all about, it's all about Facebook. So I just switched. It's a really good question why it lost because there, there actually were pretty substantial network effects on MySpace at that time. And I'm actually not fully sure what Facebook did. I think it did start to add some better technical features relating to feeds and stuff like that. And then mm. I think I, I have to look more to do it. And, and we did a whole episode very early on when this podcast was still Web Zero about how they allowed arbitrary AP, you know, API programming and stuff like that. So yeah. they, they were doing that. And then I think I have to check, but there may have been like security issues on MySpace with letting people just inject random code into it. Like it was, I think, partly sort of Facebook providing some better things that people wanted for network effects, Facebook doing a bait and switch in terms of having cool APIs and then getting rid of them. And then also like security is real. Like you can sort of neglect security, but if everyone's you know, getting their computer exploited all the time because of huge gaping holes. Like, that's also a problem. I actually don't know enough to remember how much that was. I wonder if it's also related to just lack of monetization capability of MySpace, because it's like MySpace would be better for a creator, for someone who actually is creative. But for the masses, you know, maybe Facebook, it's a simpler product. Um, it's too much don't pressure to bad. be creative. I didn't know, uh, I didn't yeah, know any HTML. I didn't want to... I didn't want to, uh, you know, my, my page was just like teal and orange and other people had all this wacky shit going on. I had like a nice, simple, smooth interface, like a school uniform. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the creators basically couldn't actually monetize that creativity. So you're left with like, you're left with like, oh, I built this really beautiful um, digital land. I've like improved it a ton, but I actually can't benefit in any way. And so it gets attacked easily. I'll sell you my MySpace profile. <laughs> let's let's not be too nostalgic about MySpace because when you're missing really interesting program like programmability beyond just you know HTML and embedding clips of like you know people vomiting, um, like you you are left with like and you and you don't have sort of money integrated. There is a limit to what you can do, and there there was that feeling around people's properties then. Like if you watch like you know awesome British shows from the period, like Nathan Barley, like there was this feeling of like sort of creators just sort of going wild and like the society being completely, uh, you know, weirdified by that. And that, that's something I'm pretty excited to get back to, uh, Nathan Barley world. Hit these fire breaks of like, of money, of lack of composability, yeah. of the underlying yeah. software. Yeah. So, Urbit. <laughs> on the I mean, do you, do you think that and, this yeah. is, is coming to Urbit? Because right now, I mean, when people talk about Urbit and like the value of a particular ship or something like that it's often has to do with what reputation you've built which is not so different from just um you know twitter or instagram but do you think there is going to be ways in which you can really build out and differentiate your experience such that a way that it creates value for whoever owns the ship or is you're able to project like the feeling of someone walking into your nice house when they interact with you short answer yes so 
it's it's a lot about like the applications people make that enable that. But I think that one thing that we'll have more and more soon, and projects like Holium are enabling this in terms of like providing an operating system on top of your Urbit that you can view different apps in, is make it easier for kind of small time apps that people or their friends write to yeah. be be like usable for you, which then lets you have people interact with you through those interfaces. Or you could very easily imagine DAOs using, you know, custom chats that they have and stuff like that. I think that there's there's a huge space for this kind of very MySpacey, wacky creativity. And we've explored it very little just because of, honestly, sort of time and focus reputations, um, you know, might be one of like the main blockers. Yeah. And like, it's interesting whenever I see like an Urbit dev, when I see like their Urbit experience, I'm like, oh, what are those apps? I like take a screenshot. I like, I'm just like, hey, can I like write down what those apps are? I don't have those apps. And then I saw Holium's demo and like, I know it's not quite public yet. I think it releases at assembly, but I was just like, holy shit, you could really customize this experience. This is like, yeah, you can go the MySpace route. This tool, the tooling is getting commoditized in a way that it never was in web two. So this was like very exciting for me. I think we, you know, we went on that MySpace tangent that is something I hadn't thought of. I think we really got into the idea of social graphs beyond just the like basic way people think of them and really like elaborating these ideas of like these very organic webs that happen in cities in a way that I think is going to, you know, push me a lot to think of how to implement that programmatically. I think we also are starting to answer the question that you're always asking, which is what's different now? Why could we actually make these digital cities now? And I think the thing, I was not expecting us to land on the answer of um, these sort of money business, like goal type things that people do also leading to social interactions and the way that like having these kind of shared goals and MacGuffins create different types of like, you know, links between people and like lines between them. So honestly, for me, it's just like, a lot to think about right now in terms of the possibilities. But I think that the the new technical aspects and monetary aspects here are actually opening up pretty novel stuff. And I want to almost, you know, meditate on it a little bit so that I can come back to you guys with new conclusions from the mountaintop. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end. And I'll say that I just hope in whatever digital city I live in, we can all turn together to face the flag, put our hand over our hearts and say, God save the king. Goodbye, everybody. God save the king. God save the king.